Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, you'll hear Ben Ball, publisher at Simon & Schuster, talk to author and lawyer Joe Lennon about Joe's debut short story collection, In the Time of Foxes. A quick reminder, as this is a live recording of an event held over the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. To introduce Ben, here's the host of the event, Reading Zone, Chris Gordon. Let me now take a moment to talk to you about someone who is quite extraordinary, uh, Ben Ball. Ben Ball has just joined Simon Schultzer a couple of years ago, and he is going to be talking to an author of one of the very first books that he has published. He has been someone that's been around the publishing fields for for many, many years. Uh, He's a guy that knows what he's doing. He seems to be able to put his finger on the pulse and pick absolute winners. So all us booksellers, we all know about Ben and we all imagine that one day that we can learn from him. So this is a treat tonight that you get to have someone of this expertise with you on Zoom in the very comfort of your lounge room or your bedroom or your study or wherever it is that you may be. And he's going to be talking to Joe uh, about Joe's first book, which is this one here, In the Time of Foxes. You can buy this book so, so easily from readings and you'll notice on the email that I sent you a little tab. And all you have to do, my friends, is press on that tab and before you know it, this brilliant collection of short stories will be in your letterbox. But now, let us make Ben very, very welcome. Over to you, dear sir. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, and thank you uh, to Readings for having us this evening. It's very good to have you all uh, virtually with us. Uh, thanks for joining. Depending on where you are, actually, you may be glad that you didn't have to leave the house this evening. Actually, depending on where you are, you may not be allowed to leave the house this evening. Um, I'm delighted to be here talking with Joe Lennon. Uh, Joe, as Chris has said, is um, has has picked the post. Uh, well, it's a bit an exaggeration to say the most extraordinary time in recent history to publish a book, but uh, that's what's happened. Uh, her marvellous collection uh, in the time of foxes uh, came out a few weeks ago, only a few weeks ago, almost simultaneous with her first child. She only has one of those things in the room with her now. Though. Joe, how are you? How does it feel to be publishing in a pandemic? Um, it's thrilling, Ben. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> Um, no, it's, 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 a, it's a tricky time. I think it's really tricky for, for bookshops, as you know, especially the independence that we value and, tr- and cherish. And um, so just it's, it's been really brilliant to do events like this one where um, readings and, and others have kind of rallied around and um, convened these conversations, which, which are a really nice thing to do and, and feel, I think, you know, as I, I heard this one will tonight, feel surprisingly um, social, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a nice vibe and this is not a live stream. People can ask questions. We do feel like it's sort of in, in the tent. It's, um, it's, in, it's in this um, meeting-like space, which feels a bit like being in the same room together. So it's a really nice thing, I think. Uh, 
I, I, I agree. I must say my, my isolation has been to more book events in my isolation than I have uh, at any other time. I, and, and Joe, short stories, what are you, what are you thinking? Who is interested in short stories? Oh, everyone. No. Um, why did you try? Why did I try? I, I, I tried short stories because I wanted to have some fun, Ben. Um, and I was bored of a, a, a novel that I was writing and I'd reached a bit of an impasse with that. And it was a bit laborious, a bit kind of over, overworked and a bit sort of self-consciously capital L literary, shall we say. And I just got to the point where I thought that was all a bit dull and I wanted to do something that was a little bit more spirited, inventive. I wouldn't say experimental because I don't think these stories are formally experimental necessarily, um, but I hope they have a kind of freshness that I wanted to inject into them that has something of the kind of writing that I suppose was cropping up in chats with friends, you know, the WhatsApp chat where you, it's, it's, it's quick back and forth and sharp and funny and, you know, you sort of riff off each other. And, and I just found myself thinking I want to do more of that that feels like writing of this time and feels a bit more like me, to be honest, than, than this other very kind of, you know, worked, overworked stuff that somehow ends up being a bit dead on the page. And I just felt that short stories were the way to try that out and, and give that a bit of a whirl um, for whatever reason. So I think that that was, was born out really because then once I sort of got into the swing of it, it I really had a lot of fun writing this collection and it um, not all of the stories came quickly, but the I would say that the second two, the last two thirds of the book perhaps kind of it was a bit of a romp to to write so that that felt like a um a good decision and actually i heard that of course it's not intentional but i wonder whether it is uh the short story is suited for these times when our probably our attention spans are more frayed than usual um congratulations on this tremendous collection and the brilliant praise it's deservedly gathering we, we thought we might kick off everybody with a short reading. Joe, are you up for a short reading? Yes, absolutely. A title story. So, um, the, as you know, the book is called In the Time of Foxes and the title story has the same title, funnily enough. Um, this, is, uh, this is a story that really brought things together in my mind and, and gave me the idea for the fox as a motif for the book. The, um, the, the premise of this story is that there is an, a youngish um, filmmaker and mum of a toddler living in Hackney in London and she has many, many things to do, including take care of her mother's care needs back in Australia, um, in Wollongong, but she also for the time being has to deal with a problem, a fox problem in her back garden. Uh, so this is um, a, an extract from, from that story. A world away in London, foxes carried out fox business. They stared with tawny eyes, trailed their tails behind them like rudders, came to grief in hit and runs, dying or limping on, went bald from mange and mites, picnicked in parks under the cover of darkness, traversed the top of garden walls and were captured and released. 
They slunk under the cold gaze of CCTV cameras, startled commuters and carried on. Fox News winged its way to Nina. The workmen had dug out the rotted tree trunk and roots or as much of them as they could. They doused the holes with repellent, gave it a few days and came back. They filled in the cavities with loose earth. Finally, to be certain, they paved a neat rectangle of ground over the top. While they were at it, they cut back the bushes at the rear, rebuilt the retaining wall and repaired the fence. It was time to return. Over a weekend in mid-December, the trio flew back to London and reoccupied the flat. Having held it together for the trip, Nina came apart at home. Halfway through the unpacking, she slumped to the floor and cried. Brent made coffee, brought it to her and took Ronnie out to play, bundling him into his coat and boots. You're not in Australia now, Toto, he said. Remarkably, Ronnie had no jet lag. He launched back into his life like a happy duckling into water. He did not ask about the foxes and Nina realised that this was the talent of small children. Their love had the character of sunlight, falling on whatever or whoever was there with them. They gave no thought to what was missing. They mourned nothing and no one. The task of grieving fell to adults. So it's down to me, she thought. She thought of the foxes. She was not immune to their charms. She had watched them playing in the garden and known them all by sight. She thought of the cub with the four black socks using its hind paw to scratch its ears, and of the cub with black tipped ears and orange white hind legs. She thought of the vixen, her tall ears drawn smartly back, in rude health with no trace of mange, a sleek white bib of fur lining her undercarriage. They weren't her foxes, but she loved them. She wasn't supposed to, but she did. What was it about them? Their animal natures, their ability to be themselves, which was its own sort of talent the ease with which they moved, assuming that the world was theirs and everyone else just lived in it. Thank you, Joe. So um, as you pointed out, the fox is a motif through the book but, and obviously a motif in that story. What, what's the fox? Tell us about the fox in this story. What, did, what, does, what does it represent? Well, I think the fox in the book, not just in this story, the fox is a, is, is a survivor. The fox is a very adaptable animal or species and in that way is very much like we humans so the fox is successful in the sense that as a after humans they are the land mammal that has the greatest um extent of of habitats so the greatest geographical spread across the the globe and oftentimes they live in environments that we live in so they're not just wild animals, they're also feral animals as they are in this story, living in, in human environments and, and sharing that, that terrain with us. So there's, there's a crossover there. And that crossover, I think, has gone back so far in the human story that we have so many different tales and so much folklore about foxes and they appear in our sayings, they appear in our myths. And so there's so much to mine there, I suppose, as a writer. There's that very long-standing um, set of stories that you can go dive into um, and, and try to make something new of them. So that's, that's that mercurial quality. And it's also, um, it's also the, the survivor aspect, the adaptability 
and and there's this a sort of element of reinvention that I think runs through the stories in this book. They're weirdly adorable. Uh, in in the book, uh, and maybe in people's minds, there's a counterpoint to the fox, isn't there? Uh, and sort of phrase repopularized by Isaiah Berlin, the fox knows many things, um, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. So the book also has this sort of shadow figure of the hedgehog uh, in it. Do you, do, do you, oh, actually, does it have the shadow figure of the hedgehog in it? Do you, do you think of it that way? And if so, what is the hedgehog in your mind? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good, that's a good observation and a good question. I think the, it, it, it casts foxes in a certain light because foxes, if they know many things, they have this kind of cleverness about them and perhaps are a kind of, um, proxy for a certain demographic or generation of people that you can find in this book, sort of people of about my age, the, you know, elder millennials, perhaps. Um, they're not all of, of that, that stripe, but, um, but some, some of them are. And they're, they're quite mobile, living in different places, perhaps places where they're not from, like this um, filmmaker Nina living in London. Um, so there's, there's the, the, these fox-like people who are clever and know many things perhaps and are making their way in the world or worlds. And then in some stories we, we encounter um, slightly more hedgehog-like people if we're using, um, using that typology who, who are a little bit more blinkered and perhaps don't see something coming when it's um, looming in the um in the wings shall we say it, it, they also let me put something to you um, you you also seem to have in the stories a tremendous balance between uh, actually between two impulses one is stuff actually happening telling a story uh in story i think of stories like animal behavior um, about an animal rights activist and academic or catch and release which a lawyer's confronted by an old client. Um, and, and I think of that as the sort of foxiness of the stories. Um, but, but, but just as often, uh, it seems to me, that the pivotal moment is not a, a moment of action. Um, it's like the moment you, you read to us, actually, from the title story. It's, just a, it's a moment of realisation. It's a moment of internal action, change in mood. And, and that's the sort of hedgehog quality um, in part. It, is that one of the appeals of the short story to you, that it can, can balance the inner and outer event? Yeah, I think absolutely. And we're perhaps quite familiar with literary short stories that trade in the epiphany, that moment of, of realisation, perhaps that inner, um, that inner action that you're describing. It was also, and, and that's absolutely important in these stories. It was also important to me in these stories to have, as you say, things that happen. Um, I sometimes had in mind the kind of thing that screenwriters say or filmmakers or theatre people say, which is that if nothing changes, it's, it's not a story. And that's not that shouldn't just be an epiphany, in my view. Um, so it, it should be matched with something that happens in, in the world um, as well. And, yeah, it was, it was important to me that, that there were those two things happening in these stories. 
because I wanted them to be entertaining. And I think that, you know, as readers, we quite like it when there's a twist or, you know, something. Actually. It happens. <laughs> yeah. It's not just and a kind of vignette, I, 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 would, I would suggest. Yes, and a novel can do this too, of course, but, but uh, there tends to be more gears it has to move through. Which, are you aware of one or the other coming first when you have the idea for a story? Is it the, does the fox or the hedgehog come first? Gosh. Um, is, it, is it an outer set of events or a sort of inner mood that strikes you first? I think, I think it's the mood. I think it's the mood. And I think that as a writer, I probably start there. As I say, that kind of time and place and character and that kind of thing. But in, if I'm actually, to be honest about my method, what I would do is write a story at some length and then step back and try to kind of analyse it in terms of uh, those classic story archetypes, you know, in the sort of um, Aristotelian sense. Is this a tragedy? What kind of tragedy is it? Is, is, does the epiphany arrive too late, et cetera, et cetera? And then um, kind of pare back or draw out those elements which in action terms are really important to the telling of that story. And so then that's the kind of um, the crafting of the narrative in order to best realise that story that has emerged, if that, um, if that, if that answers your question. So, so that's the, the epiphany is there and also the, the events and, and, and the action of the story is there. Um, one of the other great appeals of the short story is the um, possibility of variety. And you, you, <laughs> you excel. Indeed, you overachieve in this department. You take us to, you've already taken us to London and to Wollongong, but there's also Sydney and Japan and Oxford and even, even Mars. Um, I think we've got time for you to squeeze in, uh, uh, have, well, have we a, a little bit of a, a story that's set in Japan? Uh, would you read us a little bit from Fox Face? Sure. Okay. <clears throat> and this is a, a story just briefly about a, a young woman named June who le leaves a cult called the family that she has grown up in, on the outs in a in a centre on the outskirts of Osaka. Um, so I'll, I'll just want you. To begin with, though, June didn't know what happened to people who left. If anyone left the centre where she lived, a collection of houses and small help holdings on the outskirts of Osaka, populated by families and singles, some foreign, some Japanese. They were either brought back in disgrace or never spoken of openly again. Her friend Alistair, for example, had gone out to buy a lawnmower part one weekday in October and failed to come back. In his mid-twenties, Alistair had always seemed to June enthusiastic about life in the family. The extraordinary fact of his departure split, split her being in two. She felt frightened, petrified, and at the same time, emboldened. A few months after this, she turned 18. She didn't tell anyone her plans. One cold night, she slipped away after dinner in the communal hall, took a bus and then another to get to the ferry terminal on the other side of Osaka and bought a one-way ticket for 8,000 yen in cash. The ferry was cheaper than her flight and she didn't need to book. 
That night, she stretched out to sleep in a large dormitory-style room with other women, all strangers. She hardly slept on the passage, tossing and turning on her mat. The ferry tossed and turned as well, making its way south through a choppy swell. In the morning, industrial-style lights came on to rouse any passengers who were still asleep, prizing eyelids open and forcing a reckoning with the day. Around her, everyone was gathering their possessions, getting ready, looking like they knew exactly what the coming hours would bring. For June, who was uncertain about what lay ahead, there was something sickening in the sound of the engines churning. She pulled on her boots and rucksack and left the women's dorm. Crossing the beer-stained carpet, she passed the chirping pachinko machines where several players still sat captive, bought a coffee at the vending machine and stirred in two sticks of sugar. Then she pushed forcefully through a door to meet the wind on the front deck. Thank you. Well, there, there something really is happening. Uh, and June, the central character of the whole story, um, sort of the reverse of the fox. She's one of those, um, maybe she's one of those hedgehog characters, sort of un unworldly and not at all equipped to get ahead. Um, but she operates from some sort of deep reserve of strength. Um, go, go somewhere. This is a question that also Anna asks, or, or touches on a question that Anna from the audience asks. Um, a lot of your stories are set in different places. Um, and it seems to me that going somewhere new can sort of disarm us in, in this way, can strip away some of our ease and confidence and assuredness about the way things operate. Your, and your imagination clearly responds to different places. What, what, what do you think that is? Why do you, why, are you taking to, why, why do you take to this variety of locales for your stories? Well, I think that that has come organically or fairly organically out of a, a set of interests I've had, you know, things that I've kind of, things that have stuck with me over the years really, and that I wanted to go back to and explore. And, and so that has been a time and a place, I suppose. And um, that is just reflective of some places that I've been or spent time in. And so they have cropped up in these stories and perhaps the, the fox motif um, helps to make sense of that in that there is this kind of variety or, or geographical spread of the, of the fox as well. So um, I think it's, it's really just what I wanted to do and then hopefully we find ways artistically of making sense of that. We have actually, there's a, there's a question from Rebecca here on, on that point. Um, and I'll read it in full because it's such an interesting question. The fox's cultural significance differs wildly between nations. The British urban fox, the Japanese fox, it's almost as if Joe's read the book, a travelling haiku poet's revelation, and the Australian... Oh, is this, oh, no, this is from Rebecca. Sorry, it's addressed to Joe. God, for a moment I thought, Joe, you were trolling me in some way, uh, <laughs> testing whether I'd actually... I would do that, but attention. not on this occasion. Um, and the Australian feral native species decimating fox or all very distinct and different beasts. Can you talk a bit about how you modulated all those associations through your own Australian context? Um, well, that, that's, that's, really, that's a really good question. One thing, one way I tried to do this was having a character who recurs in a couple of the stories. And it was, 
I think important to me to have a sense of return in these short stories um, so that there is a kind of sense of cohesion. It is a collection. It is a book. It's not just a, a series of discrete stories that there is a, a kind of thread that runs through. And one of the ways I tried to do that is, is with having a, a character named Rowan who is probably most closely identifiable with me um, in that kind of auto-fiction sense and that her biographical um, details most closely mirror my own. Um, and I've done that deliberately because I wanted to give the reader some handholds or footholds in a way. Um, and I think that that also is a kind of anchor for talking about foxes because that's the Australian um, centre of gravity for the book. And we find at the in the final story a kind of er fox or originating fox, if you like, that I think helps to make sense of some of the things that come before. And I don't want to preempt that too much, perhaps, but I have I have been mind, mindful of these things. And I do think ultimately a reader does have a question, a live question, why these stories, why from this author? And so I've I've tried to lay lay a few little little hints there in in some of those stories with with Rowan as the central character being being Australian having these Australian settings and and certain encounters with with foxes so I, ho I hope that the the answers are kind of laid throughout we have to read the collection obviously but and, and that, actually that takes me to the question I wanted to close on and then we probably do have to wrap it up um, you've, we talked a bit about variety and you've just talked about one of the ways in which the collection also forms a unity, but there are other ways too, of course, that we talked about, um, as the fox motif and, and the, and the themes. What, what, what did you have at the front of your mind when you were choosing and also ordering the stories? When I was choosing the stories, ah, uh, well, that's a different question to order. Uh, have, have you got enough? Probably was the. the <laughs> yeah, well, I had so many great stories, Ben, that it was really hard to choose. No, that's entirely untrue. In fact, I had other stories um, that were sort of loosely part of this collection, and I was determined not to publish them, but to write new ones that would be far better. And so that was the task I set myself, and I would like to say that I did that. Um, but what I sent you, Ben, is is the collection that ex that had those new stories in them and that excluded the the duds, and um, so I didn't have any good ones that I discarded. These are the ones that I thought were the good ones. So I hope we can agree on that. Um, ordering them that was something that uh, we had fun doing in in discussion, really. And I think sometimes after you've looked at things, other people have good ideas about well. Why don't we throw this at the front and, you know, maybe we can be a bit more surprising and, and so on. So it was, it was fun to do that in discussion with, with you um, once we got to that uh, stage of things. And fun it was. Uh, great pleasure and a great privilege. Joe. thank you for your time this evening. I think I now hand back to Christine. Okay. for a final uh, farewell. But thank you everybody for joining us. I hope you have a chance to read the collection and let us know what you think by some magic of social media, doubtless. Uh, ben, thank you so much. Joe, thank you so much to all of you that joined us on Zoom. Uh, 
on behalf of Readings, on behalf of Son and Schutzer, what a treat. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Christine. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.